Sick Boy Podcast is a health and comedy show about what it's like to be sick. Wait, is that right? How can illness be funny? You'd be surprised. Okay. Sick Boy is hosted by me, Brian Stever. And me, Taylor McGilvery. And myself, Jeremy Saunders. Come on in and join us to melt your heart, learn something fascinating, and bust a belly laugh. Trust us, you'll be glad you did. You can find Sick Boy on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your pods. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Brian Goldman. Welcome to The Dose. Psychedelics are no longer just illegal street drugs. A lot of research has come out about their benefits as treatments for people with mood and other mental health disorders. So this week we're asking, what do we know about how psychedelics can treat mental illness? Hi, I'm Dr. Rob Tange. I'm a psychiatrist, chief medical officer of the Newley Institute and a clinical assistant professor at the University of Calgary. Hi, Rob. Welcome to The Dose. When was your first experience in treating a patient with psychedelics? You know, it was an interesting experience. I, I used to run a, a program where we helped uh, people with uh, severe uh, mental illness, so depression and trauma, um, often personality disorders, uh, with uh, chronic pain and opioid addiction. And we would really help them try to come off of the opioids, uh, which often would interfere with their mental health. And um, we had a few patients that were really struggling, even after doing a lot of therapy and a lot of treatment. And I referred them over for ketamine treatment, and they came back, I mean, I mean, really quite remarkably well. Um, it, was, it was a shocker to me. I was I'm a born skeptic and uh, was probably doubtful that it was going to do anything. But, you know, I was down to I don't know what else to do here. And um, not only did they do so much better, but they responded to therapy with us so much better. Uh, And that was the first kind of what what is this? What what am I missing here? I got to figure something out here quickly. Some people may think psychedelics are only illegal drugs. But how is the medical community using those drugs at the present time, Rob? I think that the medical community is really just uh, trying to grapple with what this is all about, and uh, myself included. I think that classically, these were exactly as mentioned, uh, recreational uh, kind of party drugs. uh, And we are learning about their powerful uh, medicinal properties and helping people who have been suffering with depression, anxiety and trauma. Uh, and we're just uh, we're getting there. But I think actually, surprisingly, the medical community is quite open as this is very data driven and not activist driven, you know, not business driven as much as as data and outcomes. So how widely are they being used right now in Canada? Uh, therapeutically, that is. Yeah, I, I would say underground uh, they're happening uh, outside of ketamine, uh, they are illegal still. So you have to apply for a special exemption in order to uh, prescribe it as a medical professional, whether a physician or nurse practitioner. Uh, and, and in that process, it's, it's generally only palliative patients or end-of-life care where it's being used with products such as psilocybin or MDMA. So uh, let's back up then and let's talk about ketamine first. Why is ketamine the furthest along in terms of research and usage? I think ketamine uh, was a medication that was uh, sometimes diverted recreationally. Uh, So it started off with a DIN number and started off as a medication, a a dissociative anesthetic, um, you know, used in eMERGE, as you you well know, uh, also post-surgical and for surgical pain. And 
incidentally found out a lot of people who are struggling uh, with depression and, and other mental illness concerns uh, were suddenly getting better after surgery, which was pretty shocking. Uh, so it was data driven to understand. And now part of our guidelines for the treatment of, of resistant mental illness, uh, psychiatric disorders, uh, as well having Health Canada approval uh, for the use of treatment uh, with ketamine for depression and, and other uh, mental disorders. Continuing with our discussion of ketamine, how does ketamine work in the brain? Yeah, so ketamine works on the NMDA receptor, so it works on that GABA glutamate balance, which is one of the most uh, dominant receptors in the brain and really found throughout the brain. Uh, as for understanding how it actually works, that's pretty tricky. We, we don't necessarily know all of its effects of, of down to the, the biological mechanisms of how it works. But it has the ability to create this ego dissolution, uh, which I'm sure uh, you've read about and seen lots about. Uh, but this is the, the major central focus on how psychedelics uh, work in, in treating depression and trauma. I want you to explain uh, in simple terms what you mean by ego dissolution. In a simple way, it, it breaks down that boundary between yourself and the world and opens yourself up to the experiences, which really uh, works as a catalyst in, in therapy. You know, that's a really interesting observation that so, so ego dissolution means that it allows you this, this, this drug ketamine allows you to step back and see yourself as others see you. Is, 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 is that, is that what you're saying? Yeah. So, and, and allows you to build the insight. Often we're so stuck in ourselves. In, in who we are and, and everything re revolves around us, we suddenly step back and see, holy cow, I'm just a, a piece of the world and how do I function in the world uh, that's around me? Uh, and so it builds massive insight for individuals. So that's how scientists, uh, mental health specialists believe ketamine works in the brain how helpful is it for various mental health conditions? I want to take them one at a time. Let's start with PTSD. Well, we're getting new uh, data uh, almost every day. There's a lot of research going on and, and really showing that it works. Uh, we know that, you know, centers like the Operational Stress Injury Program that focuses on treating veterans and RCMP officers uh, for those not responding to therapy alone, often will be referred to uh, ketamine treatment. Uh, so we know it, it works really well uh, for those individuals, but the data is just coming along. And again, the data looks very positive. And if you were to posit how it works, how, how would it work to help people with severe PTSD? Well, you know, when you have PTSD, something traumatic happened to you and that has affected you. That also leads to the building of, of boundaries and blockades of trying to protect yourself. Uh, and so we want to break those boundaries down, that ability to create ego dissolution or being able to step back is a huge piece in order to move forward with trauma therapy. It can break down that uh, moral uh, injury and injustice that is often a part of trauma and PTSD and enhance the therapy itself. 
So can you give me a sense of, of how it's incorporated and, and, and what other modalities of treatment are used uh, alongside ketamine in tandem with ketamine? Yeah, so there's there's a lot of different ways of doing this. So some people, you know, may do ketamine at a different clinic and then uh, do the the trauma therapy uh, separate at a, a clinic that's focused on psychosocial. Uh, some people are doing these ketamine assisted therapies. Um, these are not uh, evidence based and have not been studied very well. Um, what we're trying to do is is that that uh, combination of you're doing intensive trauma therapy. So you'll do trauma therapy two, three times a week, and you're following a ketamine treatment algorithm where you'll do ketamine therapy uh, two times a week. Uh, and so even after four weeks, we're seeing uh, you know, uh, a response rate of, of over 80%. And uh, that, that really suggests that the ketamine is really enhancing the therapy also talks about the fact that intensifying trauma therapy has its own benefits, which has also been shown. And is this a short-term benefit or do we know anything about what the long-term benefits might be? Best question yet. We don't know that yet. Uh, and Brian, what we're doing is uh, we're following uh, at 90 days, at six months and at one year to exactly look at that. Most ketamine treatment means you got to keep coming back uh, we've had just a couple of people come back after uh, almost six months of operating. So, you know, the, the thinking is if you add a lot of skills and resiliency, uh, different CBT types of treatments, and then you add in the trauma therapy and then the ego dissolution and insight building that not only do you help people get well now, but they use those skills and insight to stay well. Okay, uh, so that's PTSD, a very important subject, but another area where ketamine is being used a lot is in depression that's resistant to other forms of treatment. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, this is where ketamine has a plethora of data uh, and why it's a part of our Canadian guidelines uh, and why it's being used uh, so predominantly. The data clearly shows that can rapidly turn depression around. It can turn off the intrusive thoughts, and it's probably the most powerful anti-suicidal medication that we have today. And in fact, uh, my hypothesis is that within the next few years, if you show up to emerge uh, with suicidal ideation, um, that you will end up being treated with ketamine right then and there. It's only a matter of time when, when our clinical practices catch up to the current data that we're seeing. You know, I'm curious, how does it work in preventing uh, thoughts of self-harm? Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. I don't think, again, we understand the physiology of it. But, you know, when we think of things like theory of mind, you talked about empathy. You know, ketamine works on an area of the brain, uh, the temporal uh, parietal junction, where that area of the brain is really thought to be uh, related to the theory of mind, where you start to understand how your what you're doing is affecting everyone else and where you sit in the world. And that may have a big part of it, but there is an absolute biological process that's occurring here too. What people will tell you is it turns off that inner voice, that constant voice saying, you know, why am I here? I'm better off uh, out of here. My family and friends are better off without me. That immediately shuts off, uh, which is really quite remarkable. Queer life in Montreal was wild. Montreal in the 90s. 
was a great time, but it had a dark side. It was not a safe city for gay people back then. But what else was behind a series of deaths in the city? Somebody's killing gay men. We want to know why. I'm Francis Pruard, and this is The Village, The Montreal Murders. Get early access to episodes at cbc.ca slash listen or by subscribing to the CBC True Crime Premium channel on Apple Podcasts. So we've talked a lot now about ketamine. I want to turn to magic mushrooms. What can you tell us about that? Well, uh, you know, Magic Mushrooms would be uh, the street name that um, many uh, younger Canadians have uh, probably experimented with in the summer and spring times. The, the active ingredient being psilocybin, and we are seeing a lot of data coming out uh, for the treatment of depression. Uh, and from, we're talking Ivy League high-end universities like Yale and Johns Hopkins. Uh, this has become a, a real big thing as we move forward. And Let's be honest, psychiatry has not had any innovative medications in decades. So it's nice to see a new tool perhaps showing up in our toolbox. Can you give me a sense of where the most promising areas of research are when it comes to psilocybin? I think we're still learning about the data and figuring things out. Uh, you know, we have to remember it's still an illegal substance. Uh, it's still... Um, not being used for medical purposes outside of end-of-life care. And uh, we're probably a ways away yet before we actually see this. Uh, and until the data supports it, uh, moving into getting a DIN number. But uh, so, you know, I think that we're a few years away. But uh, again, any chance uh, as a, a psychiatrist of having another tool in our toolbox with so many people out there suffering This, this is uh, an exciting uh, platform for us to be watching and, and, you know, being able to work in it is even more exciting. You mentioned that it's being used probably most often in end-of-life care, at least in a therapeutic sense. How is it supposed to be working? What is it supposed to be doing? Well, the, the thought is that uh, psilocybin works uh, primarily on the serotonergic uh, areas of the brain. Uh, it works on a serotonin receptor. Uh, it seems to increase serotonin, uh, similar to that of some of our, our current antidepressant medications. Uh, but again, there is that uh, hallucinogenic and psychedelic effect, the ego dissolution that occurs with it. Uh, it has some similarities to that of what we've seen with ketamine. Um, and whether or not it is more effective or more powerful, we do not have any of that data. And this is You know, there's a lot of excitement, but at the same time, we just don't know a lot as well. And we're still learning as we move forward. Do you have any sense, do we know anything from the data about, about how patients at the end of life react to, to psilocybin? What is it about the experiences that they have with this particular uh, medication that they, that they like that, that are helpful to them? Yeah, it, it's interesting. Uh, rarely do I hear the word like. <laughs> um, I think um, people don't necessarily like the experience, but it builds a lot of insight, as mentioned. It allows one to see uh, their end of life for what it is and uh, step back from the suffering of, of dying. Um, I think very few people accept death at the end of the day. Um, 
and, and, you know, uh, appropriately. So I would say, you know, perhaps my grandmother just passed away. She was 95. Uh, she chose like no more IVs, bring the priest in, give my last rites. I'm ready. But she was 95, lived a fruitful life. My father passed away last year uh, in his early 60s. He was not uh, in any way ready to die. And um, there was a significant level of suffering watching him at the end of life, uh, not being home, uh, not being with his, his family every day. Uh, you know, and the hospice was great. This is nothing against that. Um, but I think it, it really allows someone uh, to, to move on who are stuck in denial into that level of acceptance that, you know, I, I am going to die and, uh, you know, we're all going to die eventually, but when we're faced with it, uh, head on, that's a whole different process. And, and I think that's the big piece. It allows acceptance. Uh, it allows someone to be ready for it, even though it seems impossible to be ready for it, especially at a young age. We've we've spoken now at some length about the benefits, the positives, the potential positives to 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 psychedelics. Are there any negatives that we need to be aware of? There, there I think there's a lot of people doing some uh, underground treatments. Um, we've had many come to our clinic who talk about some of their negative experiences of not feeling safe, not feeling supported. Um, you know, uh, taking mushrooms in somebody's basement and, and being told this is a treatment. Um, I think that uh, that is a risk factor in and of itself. Um, there are some people, if not in the right uh, mindset, so that concept of set and setting, uh, not being around uh, highly trained, uh, what we believe should be uh, highly trained psychologists, um, who can be there as well as medical practitioners, nurses, uh, you know, making sure that we're monitoring vitals and everything else. But, uh, and a lot of that is more safety related uh, and, and the comfort and feeling safe. Uh, but also, you know, people can have uh, that quote unquote bad trip. Uh, it can go uh, really sour and south for someone. And if they're not uh, with a, a mental health professional who is an expert at dealing with uh, possible... Uh, psychotic events, uh, emotional dysregulation, uh, things could really go out of hand for people. So we've talked about psilocybin, we've talked about ketamine. Um, there's LSD. What do we know about research into LSD? Uh, I think uh, there's very little data out there in, in LSD and, and mental health right now, uh, but it works very similarly uh, to psilocybin on the serotonergic areas. And uh, I would anticipate as we move forward, there will be more and more data in this area and research in this area, but it, it's still pretty novel. Are there other substances that researchers are either intrigued by or starting to do research into? Yeah, I, I would say MDMA uh, is by far the leading molecule that's considered an illicit drug. It has had a phase three uh, multi-center clinical trial. It is the closest of getting a DIN number. Uh, it has been studied in treating PTSD. It has a therapy that's uh, combined with it that is also studied. It's all put together uh, by MAPS. Um, uh, I would anticipate if we're going to see a, a molecule that becomes legal first uh, for medicinal purposes, 
my guess is that MDMA would be the first one just because it's, it's the furthest ahead. It's done the most research. Final question I wanted to ask you, what do you think it'll take for psychedelics to become more widely accepted by physicians and the public? Well, I, I would say there's, there's three factors there. Factor one, I think the, the medical community, especially, uh, you know, our, our middle and younger aged uh, uh, physicians, they're, they're pretty bought in already. There's been some, um, you know, just quick uh, studies. I wouldn't, I wouldn't use the word study surveys. Uh, and, and we see quite a bit of acceptance in the medical field. Um, when it comes to, you know, insurance and return to work and treatment that way, I think that um, there, there's a, a bit of a, a pushback there and they, they really want to see a lot of data. And I don't, I don't blame them at all. I think physicians are like, look, we need to help these people. And, and if this seems to be working, let's do it. Uh, and then when we look at community as a whole and, and um, you know, non-medical practitioners, uh, you know, there's a lot of fear there. Like, this isn't a legal drug. What do you mean? Uh, this doesn't make any sense. But for those who are suffering uh, with mental health and addiction, um, there's a lot of buy-in there uh, as people are looking for anything that can help them. And right now, you know, we, we talk about tools and toolboxes, even just getting access to evidence-based treatments, just to see a therapist right now in some areas of this country is almost impossible. Uh, we have a, a huge crisis in front of us right now. And um, I think that anything that can help increase uh, access to treatment is going to be uh, broadly accepted, uh, regardless of, of where you are or your political belief or any of it. Uh, we know that politically, uh, it doesn't matter which side of the scale you're on, people believe in treatment for addiction and, and believe that we need to get better treatment out there, treatment for mental health and better treatment out there. Uh, and if this is one that works, then I think the buy-in will come pretty quickly. Dr. Robert Tangay, thank you so much for uh, talking about such an important subject. You know, it was an honor to be here and uh, really do appreciate it. And, uh, you know, hopefully a lot of people get something out of it. That's Dr. Robert Tangay, Clinical Assistant Professor at the University of Calgary and Chief Medical Officer at the Newley Institute. Here's your dose of smart advice. Psychedelics are emerging as potential tools in the treatment of various forms of mental and emotional illness. Ketamine is the only licit treatment at the present time. That's because it began as a pharmaceutical drug used as an anesthetic. Ketamine has been shown to treat severe PTSD and depression. It shows promise as a potential treatment for suicidal thoughts and treatment-resistant anxiety disorders. Psilocybin is an illicit substance and will require regulatory approval to be used widely for mental health disorders. At present, it's being studied as a treatment for people at the end of life. These treatments appear to work on specific receptors in the brain. They give the user insight by helping them see themselves as others see them. Evidence so far suggests these medications provide short-term effects, but it's unknown how well they work in the long run. The biggest downside to psychedelics is that some patients have unpleasant experiences, but these drugs do not appear to cause addiction. In fact, at least one psychedelic may be a helpful treatment for people who are addicted to opioids. These treatments are not standalone. They work best in combination with trauma therapy and other forms of counseling. The field is changing rapidly. We need to keep doing studies and following the data. 
If you have topics you'd like discussed or questions you'd like answered, tweet me at NightShiftMD, at CBC Podcasts, or at CBC White Coat using the hashtag TheDoseCBC. Our email address is thedose at cbc.ca. You can find The Dose wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this episode, please rate us five stars so more people can find us. This episode of The Dose was produced by Stephanie Dubois. Technical support was by Austin Pomeroy. Our senior producer is Colleen Ross. The Dose wants you to be better informed about your health. If you're looking for medical advice, see your healthcare provider. I'm Dr. Brian Goldman. Until your next dose. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.